If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm really excited about our guest. Please meet Matteo Jaramillo the co-founder and CEO of Form Energy, which is working to develop breakthrough, low-cost, long-duration energy storage solutions that will enable the electric system to be 100% renewably powered. Before Form Energy, Matteo spent seven years at Tesla as an early team member, where he started and led their stationary energy storage platform. Matteo has tremendous accolades behind him. He holds an AB in economics from Harvard, a master's in theology from Yale Divinity School. He is also a Henry Crown Fellow and Business Insider named him one of the 100 most important people transforming business. With Form, he's raised over $125 million in venture capital to pursue his massive vision. Let's welcome Matteo. Hi, Matteo. Hi, Alexa. Great to be here. Thrilled to have you. So first, everybody, I've known Matteo now for a long time, five plus years. He's a dear friend and somebody I admire deeply. And I'm thrilled to have him to end the season this year. And I want to just start, Matteo, before we dive into form specifically, let's just take a minute and step back. With Biden in the office, with sustainability being a core topic, I think, for hopefully most of the planet over the next many decades, can you just quickly talk about the, the tailwinds that you're, you're seeing in sustainability, and then we'll dive into how form fits into those themes? Sure. Well, in short, they're enormous. There's a huge shift that's underway, what my industry broadly refers to as the transition, the energy transition, moving from a fossil fuel-based economy, essentially. Uh, we rely on electricity so heavily and across a lot of industrial sectors to one which is renewably powered. So finding renewable sources of energy, principally electricity, because that is one of the easiest ways to decarbonize, to, to go through that transition, is to move to electricity and then make that electricity be 100% renewables or, or de deeply de decarbonized. And so that that is happening at the horse out of the barn on that one. Renewables are just now the cheapest form of energy out there. It is the cheapest new way to build electricity pretty much anywhere in the world at this point. And so the market is responding. It's responding to take advantage of that cheap and abundant source of energy. And it's driving just massive, massive change throughout a lot of industrial sectors, but principally in the electric sector. And so you have very large entities which are putting their full weight now behind that transition. Uh, and the impact is, is going to be massive. Let's dive into form. In your own words, Matteo, what is Form Energy and what's your mission? Form Energy is developing giant batteries to tackle climate change. <laughs> it, we are building, in short, the kind of battery you need to fully replace and retire coal and natural gas. So we're targeting all electric generation that today is currently produced through burning things. And what we want to do is enable wind, water, and solar to be the only sources of generation in the world, 100% renewable globally. And that requires a new kind of battery. And lithium-ion is fantastic. 
it will have a massive role in this transition that I was talking about, but it's not the only kind of energy storage we need. We need something that is uh, still an order of magnitude or two cheaper than what lithium mine can get to in the end in order to fully have that deeply decarbonized grid that we're, that we're going after. So Matteo once explained it to me um, to keep it really simple as you're basically building a battery that could be the size of a power plant yep. that could power a full city. And for me, that gave me like a really beautiful visual. And I remember actually seeing one of your decks where it was literally, you can imagine a battery the size of a big power plant that basically is just powering a full grid. Can you talk a little bit about the science and keep it simple since most people listening are not battery experts, which you have been now for decades plus. Walk us through just how it works in, in, in a way that we can all really understand. Yeah, so there are different types of energy storage mediums. You have mechanical storage, uh, like pump hydro, for example. Thermal storage, where you're, you have a, a cold side and a hot side, and, and a, you're driving a, a process that way. Uh, you have electrochemical storage, which is a battery. Essentially, you put two chemicals together and they give off an electron. So that is the type of energy storage that we're going after at Form Energy, electrochemical, a battery. And the trick is to come up with uh, abundant, cheap sources, what, what we call the active materials, those two things that when you put them together, give off an electron, start with something that's very, very cheap and abundant, and also end up with something that is super cheap. It's easy to start with something cheap and then make it expensive. You synthesize things and you, you know, process them and you, know, you add a lot of costs along the way. And, and that just sort of puts you out of the range for, for accomplishing this goal here of coming up with a really cheap battery. And so the trick is to end up with something that's really, really cheap. And so what we have done is found what we think is the absolute cheapest possible way to go make a battery. And it's unlike any other battery that's been developed to date. So there aren't a lot of corollaries for it out there in the market. This is not a lithium ion battery you can hold in your hand. Uh, this is not even a lead acid battery that you uh, might have in your car. This is sort of a meter scale type battery. It sort of redefines uh, what, what we think of when, when I say when I say battery. Um, we've certainly at Form have had to rethink what it means because the implications of going after this uh, new kind of extremely cheap battery are throughout the entire design, the entire system design, not just the cell, but the entire plant design has to be rethought. For many of the people, aspiring founders, active founders, people just deeply interested in what you're building, can we rewind a little bit? So you were at Tesla for seven years. And when you were there, you know, clearly one of the largest companies in the climate tech space, so to speak, a massive year for Tesla, just given the stock over the last little while. And you went from basically overseeing the batteries group, thinking about batteries, to then deciding that you wanted to leave and go launch this business. Can we just talk through when you left? Did you know this was going to work, right? In the early days, I remember you saying it's a bit of a science project that we're trying to you know, ensure, can we build a battery that can be efficient and work properly to accomplish this goal, to your point, cheaply enough that it actually makes economic sense to then also, by the way, save the planet, which is why I'm so grateful to be your dear friend, uh, because I believe so much in what you're doing. But go back to those early days. You took a lot of a lot of emotional risk going after this business. You you clearly believed in it and wanted to will it to happen, but it wasn't obvious that it could. So can you just tell everybody a little bit about that journey? Well, I left Tesla without knowing what I would do next, uh, much less <laughs> knowing whether or not this was going to work. You know, seven and a half years at Tesla was, was long enough for me. It was a great uh, experience. I had a front row seat to some amazing advancements in the industry, broadly speaking. And you know, hopefully I had a, a good hand in, in some of that as well. 
but I, I really just, uh, I, I left because it was time for me to leave. You know, the company was dramatically different from um, the place that I had originally started working at. And it's important to know the conditions for your own success. And for me, working at a 30,000 person company is not, is not my desired pathway. And so I left and fortunately um, had the ability to just kind of take a break. Um, and in that break, that's when I started to think about what, what does come next. H having been in batteries and energy storage for as long as I had, it's hard for me to sort of put the topic down in my head. And I kept returning to, well, what is the next thing for energy storage? Very clearly, lithium ion was, was entitled to go do a lot of things on the grid, uh, which is why I went to Tesla. I, I'm not a gearhead. I, I, you know, I didn't grow up working on cars. I didn't go there for that. I went there to start specifically the energy storage piece of it, what became the power wall and the power pack. And Tesla had all the parts that were necessary to succeed there. And, and indeed, um, that's what's happening right now. But it was also very clear to me that lithium ion is not the panacea for energy storage on the grid. In other words, there's a massive unmet opportunity by energy storage. And it's exactly the one I'm talking about. Lithium ion is, is fantastic, but it's not cheap enough to allow us to fully retire and replace the coal and the natural gas that is out there. And unless we come up with some technical intervention, there's no plan to replace those. You, you look at the forecasts from the, the IEA or, or Bloomberg New Energy Finance or pick your entity. And even in 2040, 2050, they're forecasting that a quarter, a third of all the electricity being produced on the grid is still coming from burning coal or natural gas. And that's because they can't imagine something that would replace it cost effectively. And that means it's going to be really, really hard to meet the goals that we have as a globe for decarbonization to achieve that, you know, less than one and a half C degree rise. And lithium ion simply cannot address that problem in the market. And so that is a really important thing to go work on. It's also the biggest opportunity I could think of. That's a multiple trillion dollar opportunity that's out there. And so why not think about um, whether or not you can go do that? <laughs> you know, the accepted wisdom at the time, and maybe even still today, was that it was impossible to develop a form of energy storage that was cheap enough to go address that market. And that's because people looked at lithium ion and said, well, it'll always be too expensive to go get after that market by a factor of at least 10, uh, probably by a factor of 25. But of course, that's a poor way to think about things. Um, you know, to, to this reasoning by analogy doesn't, doesn't get you to a real good answer uh, or gets you to the wrong answer. And so I, I just wanted to answer that question for myself. You know, I've been in the storage industry long enough that I know that all batteries have their flaws. And the trick is to find the application that doesn't care about those flaws. You know, lithium ion is, you could say, too expensive. That's its fundamental flaw. It's, it's great for the applications that can pay for that, but what about the ones that can't? I started off as a thought experiment more than anything else. What would it take? What kind of battery would it take to go do that thing that, that is the biggest possible opportunity on the market? And what fell out of that were some surprising conclusions. And somewhat to my own surprise, I, I found that, in fact, there were some options that it looked like could solve. It's just that you had to think about the trade-offs in the right way and truly what the, what the use case was and what the application would be and what the cost implications were there for. But of course, all the other figures of merit that we care about for, for batteries. Um, so it's about finding the right fit. No surprise, you know, your, your listeners know well about product market fit and you have to find a piece of hardware, a piece of electrochemistry that has its right market. There's no exception to the rule for working on these kinds of uh, problems uh, as far as product market fit goes. You have to deeply understand the market deeply understand what truly fits that market and then go work on that solution. So that's, that's what we did. So if you had to summarize your call it three to four years in, you know, each year in kind of the transition that you've been making, 
kind of starting with the first year, how do you verbalize how each of the years have started to stack? The first year, 2018, there was a lot of investigation around sort of the pure science of it. Would this work? I have a friend who, who likes to say that, uh, you know, he uses the phrase, does the universe work the way that you hope it does? <laughs> you don't know when, when you're working on science problems and it's a card you turn over and the answer is binary. It does or it doesn't. And so we were really working on those initially. And uh, the company started off with two technical options and we pursued both in parallel to understand which one would sort of give us the greatest chance of success without knowing really whether or not the universe worked the way that we would hope that it would on either solution, frankly. And what we ended up finding out um, faster than I would have, well, than I did think uh, initially was that one of those options in fact did work and did work uh, in a way that uh, we saw a pretty clear line of sight to commercialization. Uh, but that was really the first phase, um, understanding and then retiring the scientific risk associated with uh, going after this problem. And then the phase after that, which is the one essentially that we're in now, is that transition from research and development to sort of advanced research and development, and then now into engineering. And those are different categories of problems. There's no re reduction in the challenge associated with having it be an engineering but it is a fundamentally different risk. And it, it requires the absolute best people in the world to solve that engineering challenge to the degree that we need it solved. But the, there's no longer sort of a binary, uh, do we have something or do we not, right? Do we pack up and go work on something else? Um, now we feel uh, quite good about the entitlement um, for this chemistry um, to go achieve all the things that we think that it can go achieve. And now comes the really hard work of actually engineering the product. And then the phase beyond this will be to scale that up. Um, and that's a, also a different category of problem. So it's a really hard path that we have, but at least we feel very good about uh, being able to go down that path. Um, there's no fundamental reason why we should be able to get it to work. One of the things I, I love and admire so much about kind of watching you through this journey is lots of companies are hard to build. We know that being a founder is pretty hard almost, you know, it, regardless of what you're building. You actually have an exceptionally high degree of difficulty and each challenge, each phase of the business is uniquely different from the one prior and sort of something I like to say over and over is a CEO founder's job is actually the hardest job because the better you get at it, the harder the learning curve gets. Mm -hmm. So basically phase one with science R&D doesn't work is the universe on our side. Phase two now is let's engineer, let's build it, let's make sure that it's something that we can properly stand up. And then phase three is like, commercialize, scale, get the deals in place, get it, you know, convince the, the world um, that this is by far the better option for, for now. And, and, and so that's a very different type of founder job, Mateo. You're, you're living in, I would say, a higher degree of difficulty than most. So we'll come back to later how you, how you make yourself work and, and stay focused and, and energized. I want to quickly go back a little bit to batteries. How the heck do you end up in batteries? You have a degree from Harvard in economics. You went to divinity school at Yale, which is one of my most random favorite facts about you. If you meet Matteo, everybody in person, he's one of the most soulful humans and is just a delight. And I always attribute that to divinity school. But then you ended up in batteries. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something I imagined doing as a nine-year-old. <laughs> I grew up and work in batteries, that's for sure. But uh, to some degree, the Divinity School at Yale does have some credit for this. I, I went there uh, with the openness slash intention of, of being ordained into the ministry. I, I did have a, a desire to go see if that calling was correct. And Yale Divinity School is fantastic for a lot of reasons, 
one of the main reasons for me anyway, um, why, but I think this is true for a lot of people that go there. They, they really do focus you, you know, as a student there, if, you, if you're thinking about entering the ordained ministry, they make you really go through a, a rigorous vocational discernment process. So you have to think very hard as to whether or not that pathway is correct for you uh, professionally. It's not an easy job. And for me, the result was definitely not, <laughs> or rather I wasn't fit for that, uh, for that <laughs> role. Um, you know, some people are, that, that's just how they're built. And I saw that up close and I realized pretty early on that, that I just didn't have that. And it's amazing for the people that do, uh, but it's really important to know whether or not you're, you're well, well suited for that role. But nonetheless, what the school gave was essentially tool, a toolkit to go through that vocational discernment pathway, no matter what vocation you're considering. And so I started to apply that toolkit to figure out what I did want to go work on. And I ha have been always interested in, uh, in the environment and in particular through the human element there. My parents were both public servants and my, my father, a lawyer for farm workers in the town I grew up in, Salinas, California, a very agricultural um, center. And, um, and so I, I saw uh, and worked in environmental justice um, issues uh, very early on, you know, disadvantaged communities who, who bear the unfair burden of environmental uh, depredation. And, and there's a long history, as, as you probably would guess, of this, um, especially in the power sector. You know, the, what the Navajo people essentially took on as a result of, let's say, the Grand Canyon, right? The Grand Canyon is a beautiful national park for, for all of us. But the trade was they didn't, it didn't get dammed for a power generation facility uh, in exchange for putting a large, very large coal plant on Navajo territory, for example. And, and that community bore the burden of that externality for, for a very, very long time. And you see that repeated throughout all sorts of disadvantaged communities throughout the, throughout the country. And, and in particular, you know, there were a couple of cases that, that hit very close to home amongst specifically Mexican-American communities in, in California. And so that was my first entry point into, into the field, broadly speaking. And that's partially why I considered going to the ministry was to think about, well, how, how do you work with these communities and, and how do you really, really sort of serve them in the best way? And, and this is where maybe the economics degree comes in. I also thought about, you know, saw just how dramatically you can change people's lives through technical interventions and, and how innovation plays, um, can play such a phenomenal role in lifting people up. And so really it was a combination of those things that uh, when I realized I wasn't fit for the ministry that I started to put together and say, well, how do I synthesize all of this for me? How do I work on something that's meaningful to me and address the, the biggest problems that I see in the communities that I really want to work on? And uh, it, it sounds like I'm oversimplifying things, but I, I truly did go through a process of looking at the energy markets. I saw where solar and wind was, this was 2003. And you could see that they were both getting cheaper and very quickly. And I simply made a sector bet and said, I am betting my career that at some point it will be valuable to store that intermittent renewable energy because the opportunity is too big not to. <laughs> and, um, and so I decided to work in energy storage uh, in 2004, really. And so that's what I did. And you know, thanks to the rigor of the process, and you know, I'm sure I could have taken a turn here or there and you ended up somewhere along the way. But you know, it's something I encourage all people who are making a change or just thinking about their career for the first time to do is to, to really be rigorous with yourself about your vocational discernment. And for me, it happened to have worked out. Um, I didn't think it would take quite this long, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs>
Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to quickly go back. So you joined Tesla. You joined Tesla when it's tiny. It's so early. Tesla is not Tesla at that point. It's an idea. Um, it, was a few, it was a few hundred people. Yeah. Yeah. A few hundred people. What did you learn at Tesla that you're bringing to Form Energy? What do you think was the biggest insight that you could take away from that company that now for most is quite iconic? Well, I mean, a ton. Uh, yeah, I spent essentially the formative years of my professional career at, at Tesla. So it's hard not to take away lessons, both of things that are that are good, that should be repeated, and also things that maybe I choose not to repeat. But uh, I would say above and, and beyond anything really is a work with meaning, a work with mission. And that is sort of the linchpin that unlocks a ton of other benefits to a company. And probably the most important one is the type of people that you can attract, the caliber of folks who want to work on the hardest possible problems. And you know, I had no interest in working on meaningless work, and I don't think anybody does either. We, we, but the question is, do you, do you sort of find meaning in what you're working on, or, or does meaning um, already exist and then sort of work is attached to that. And it was amazing at Tesla to see how committed the workforce was uh, to the mission overall and um, and just how amazing the the workforce was, uh, you know, world-class organization, engineering in particular organization. Uh, that was the organization I was in. I was, a, I was a bit of a black sheep there with my theology degree, but um, but that was the organization I was in. I, I reported to our, our CTO, uh, one of the founders, J.B. Straubel, um, my time there and, and JB was great and, and built a phenomenal organization, just, you know, the caliber of which it's hard to sort of understand from the outside. And so I saw up close and, and personal, just what a difference that makes. And in fact, it's maybe even the only difference, <laughs> you know, those, those are sort of the, the biggest things that I, that I took away and, and really carry with me, um, in the way that I, I think about form and, and, um, you know, drive us to attract and retain, you know, jealously, <laughs> uh, talent. You literally teed me up beautifully for my next question, which was, I think one of the most beautiful things about form is its mission. I think probably one of the biggest assets of form is its mission. How do you articulate internally the mission of form? Well, it, you know, we have a mission statement and that's energy stored for a better world. It's a little bit vague and you, you always need to supplement a mission statement. Not, nothing is completely encapsulized in, in a single sentence. The vision though is, you know, a fully decarbonized renewable and just world. That's what we're going for. And for us, you know, we're battery folks. <laughs> and so that's our pathway to that um, is to make uh, energy story for a better world. And we think we have a, a very good pathway there. And that's not hard to communicate. And people know that that's why we're all you know, at the company. And But it has to be a big enough objective and it has to be hard enough to be worthwhile. And that is its own talent attractor. Right? The best people want to work on the most meaningful, hardest thing, because if it were easy, I don't need the best people. You need the best people for the hardest thing. And uh, and that's what I, I try and remind the team is that, you know, it's hard. We have them because it's hard. Uh, yeah. This is not meant to, to be trivial or easy, and we don't expect it to be. And 
things are going extremely well so far, but we build a great team for the hard times, not for the easy times. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said, Mateo. So you've had an incredible year. You've raised $125 million in, in capital, which to any founder, you know, starting on a sheet of paper is profound. Talk a little bit about your recent fundraising news. Sure. So we raised uh, Series C, uh, $76 million. We closed it uh, a few weeks back. Um, it was a, a round that I was not anticipating uh, when we got it underway. So it was based on inbound interest. And it all happened over the course of the pandemic. So I got an email out of the blue in April from Kotu, who ended up being our, our lead investor. And they basically said, hey, we, we've been doing our research. Um, we're, we're now moving into this field uh, for investing. And uh, we like we, we like the cut of your ship. Uh, uh, are you open to having a conversation? And we had 18 months of cash on hand. And the plan was to, to go raise sort of next year timeline. But you know, as, as a as the CEO, I'm always open to uh, to thinking about uh, new sources of uh, of great capital, and and that's what we found in Co2 and NGP and uh, uh, Energy Impact Partners, EIP, um, another one that came in in Tomasic as well, and so we ended up doing the round. And, and I think the pandemic has driven a lot of responses. Of course, one of those responses, though, is we we better be more prepared for the next great crisis that comes. And obviously, uh, it is to me anyway that um, that that is climate change, and it's already upon us. And and so there's an opportunity to to do more than we th thought maybe we sh we should be doing or could be doing. And um, and so that's certainly the perspective from the broader investment community that's out there, and the work that we're doing. We also announced our first pilot um, project uh, with the utility in the uh, Midwest in in Minnesota, and so showing that we were getting commercial traction was important and sort of a great signal to the market too. And so they, they jumped on, but yeah, it was, it was pretty linear and it's a reflection of the team that we have and, and the market that we're going after, you know, that multi-trillion dollar market um, is, is attractive to, <laughs> to investors, of course, and showing that we actually have purchase against for traction against uh, our goals is, is obviously really important. And, and I also want to make sure that, it, that, um, you know, you sort of refer, refer to me as a founder CEO, I want to be super clear. I'm co-founder and CEO. I have um, four amazing uh, co-founders, and uh, for a company like what we're taking on, um, this is not a, a, a sort of Superman effort. This is a team effort, and so I, I in, inherited a, a, these my, my co-founders um, because I knew one of them, and he reached out to me, um, Yet Ming Cheng, uh, who's our chief science officer and a professor at MIT, and so that it was really a product of putting two efforts together early on, and. For us, that was sort of the seminal cultural moment as well, which is it's so important to just get the best people in a room that we can maybe deflate the egos a bit and set them aside in service of the of the greater company goal. And uh, so that's what we did. And, and I, I just want to make sure that, that I mentioned that because it is, it's fundamental to who Form Energy is and to, I would say, collectively our success. I, I wouldn't be, you know, pick whatever thing that that I'm working on, it wouldn't be nearly as successful without my co-founders and especially that fundraise. That fundraise was in the team. It was not in me. And my my co-founders, you know, our, our CTO, Billy Woodford, our head of analytics, Marco Ferrara, and our COO, uh, Ted Wiley, in addition to Yet, are all world-class uh, scientists, operators, and uh, and entrepreneurs. And, and none of us is this our first time in the battery world? <laughs> We've been through this. I, I had my time at Tesla, but everybody had their time uh, doing other things as well. And so for something as hard and complex 
and sort of interrelated as, as developing a new kind of energy storage to go transition to a huge industrial market requires a lot of really, really good people and really good people at the very top. Uh, we can have a, a great team, but it also requires great executives in all the areas that we have. And that, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have my co-founders. I think there's something incredibly important in what you just said, which is we're trying to go after a problem that truly may or may not be the thing that saves our planet and our civilization. And as a result, the egos are fully checked at the door because this problem is so much greater than all of us. And I, and I actually was going to transition to your co-founders in a moment because for the first long period of time pre-COVID, you spent most of your time on a plane between SF and Cambridge and back and forth and back and forth. And you have three kids and a beautiful wife, Virginia. And I actually, I want to transition a bit to you. What has been the most surprising thing that you've learned transitioning into being, you know, a, a builder and a, a, a co-founder and standing up a company? What's the thing? I mean, Mateo, you're probably one of the most informed people I know. Nothing surprises you. But once you're finally in the seat, it's just different. What do you think has been the thing that's been most surprising? Yeah, I I think the thing that, that I generally was surprised with was sort of, you know, I, I'm a reflective person, as you know, and you probably could, your listeners probably could guess based on my my background. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised at how ready I was for it or how ready, you know, how, how natural it felt. I became a first time founder b- before we sort of put the two companies together. I, I'd started my own effort just by myself at age 40. And that's not sort of your typical, you know, always an entrepreneur type person. That wasn't me. You know, I wasn't starting companies on my bike at, you know, 10 years old. Um, I tend to be sort of a commit to something for a long time type person. And for me, that was energy storage. But by the time it, it became obvious, there was an opportunity here and, and there was a viable technical pathway. All the other pieces just kind of fell into place and just, it felt very, very right. And so I was sort of surprised by that because I, I didn't ever think of myself as, a, you know, this this megafauna entrepreneur type. Um, you know, we all know those types. You've had them on your show, <laughs> and I, I I don't I don't think I'm cut from that same cloth. But um, that said, I do go really deep, and I've gone really deep on energy storage, and and I I feel very confident about what we're doing and how we're doing it, and um, what our pathway to success looks like. So I guess that was somewhat of a surprise. I guess I was reassured by how easy it felt. I don't, it, I don't mean to say it's easy. It just means that. It felt very natural. Things can be hard and still feel natural. And for me, that that's what this role is. I'm kind of laughing at this because I knew Mateo before he went in and started this business. Um, and I think for all of us, it was pretty clear that it was natural from afar. So um, I'm glad that was a nice surprise for you, Mateo, because it was not a surprise to any of us. Um, well, it, well, it helps to have great friends who can point that out, by the way, too. Yeah. Um, and you know, not just you, uh, others, of course. My wife, for example, <laughs> um, you know, good counselors around you is, is is key to making that leap because it is it is a binary leap, right? You're, you you step into it, you step into it, and yeah. it's not like you can just decide the next day. Oh, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> so, Mateo, you're at the point where you're now many years into building your business. Um, you've got a decade plus to go, maybe decades, right? What are the things you swear by? The personal hacks that are just maybe your rituals, knowing that you're such a spiritual person. What are the things that you swear by? Well, uh, to, to use a phrase from our current times, uh, self-care. <laughs> I mean, certainly that's where things have to start. Uh, it's hard to take care of other people if you're not taking care of yourself. For me, that is, uh, I, in the pandemic anyway, that's exercise. I, I would go, I think my brain would go crazy if I were not able to run 
Uh, and yes, we do have a Peloton as well. Uh, that that keeps uh, certainly my wife and I sane here. Uh, so there's that. And uh, but then probably above all else, it's is uh, staying flexible and reactive to what you really need to go work on. It's not the same thing every day. And so making sure that you have a pulse for for what that is. And so for me, we have a standing exec team meeting every morning. It's early Pacific time because there's a number of folks um, on the East Coast. And also that's a great time for me to just have some some quiet. You mentioned uh, my wife and I, we do have three kids. And uh, you know once they're up, it's a different dynamic in the house until they're out. But doing that early and having that be just a standing thing where we're always checking in and we're always lifting up whatever issues need, need addressing is really important. And then just being given the remote nature of work that we have these days, being intentional about the interactions. You can't bump into somebody, not from my basement. So I've got to just schedule calls or I'll just, you know, a lot of texting, a lot of uh, video chatting, of course, but being intentional about all of it and going out and seeking, seeking employees. And, you know, as we grow, we're now 70 people. I want to make sure that people don't feel like I'm inaccessible. And, uh, you know, when you're 10 or 15, it's easy to grab time on, on the CEO's calendar. And there are people that have hired, we've, we've hired, I don't know, 15 people, maybe 10, 15 people uh, since the pandemic started. We've never met them in person. And so, you know, meeting those people at least virtually and making sure that uh, there are the connections there. Um, so I don't know if that's a hack, uh, but it's a but it's a practice. It's it's a discipline that that is is critical to making this work. I was just going to actually go there. So thank you for for bringing it up. Which is for many founders out there starting companies, standing up companies in these early days, it's it, it's invaluable. You're building the culture, you're building the tenor, you're building the commitment, and now we're all doing that virtually, which is unprecedented in human history. What would you say has been outside of the intentional connection? Has there been any other thing that you think is really important that you've been paying extra close attention to, to pay it forward to other founders listening around culture and making sure, you know, I've said this a, a few times in tail, I don't know if I would have been able to do this that well. It, it takes different skill sets to be able to make sure you're building the quality of culture and commitment virtually and from basements and in little squares. So anything else that you've learned that you could pay it forward to people? So um, we have paid a lot of attention to our culture uh, over the life of the company. And um, we've updated our values now and, and they're pretty simply stated. Uh, and, and they're essentially the humanity, excellence and creativity. And that, that's it. Uh, you know, we have sentences behind them, but you know, we want that. Um, and, and those come out of a natural conversation throughout the company. Those aren't just artificially generated. But it's also important as far as um, norms and and what are the stories that we tell about ourselves and how do you communicate those to to new people so that they know what the culture is. You have to be a little bit more didactic about things. You have to write it down. You've got it in the onboarding process. You got to share that specifically. Uh, we do this, not this. Uh, you know, this is what we mean when we say when we say excellence. And um, and you know, there are some sort of catchphrases like uh, that, that sort of encapsulate the the culture of the company that we want people to know. For example, one phrase that gets repeated pretty pretty frequently is that we're always looking for progress, not perfection. It's very useful for us right now. Another is that we don't seek conflict, but we do look for disagreement. So you can have disagreement without conflict. And that's a cultural norm, right? Um, and, you've, and you can model that behavior, of course, but we also want to be explicit with people about it. So that throughout this remote period that we're in, you just sort of have written down some of the things that you may just be more easily absorbing in person. 
And uh, so spending a lot of time on it, frankly, and, and paying attention to it um, and writing it down and then sharing it uh, and saying it again, uh, you know, those are all the things that, um, that we spend time doing. What is your coolest pinch me moment so far in the last few years of form? The moment where you said, holy smokes, I can't believe this is happening. What was it? Well, it's it's hard for it not to be that the, when we closed our Series A because it, you know that sort of makes it feel real. We had uh, these two companies uh, that were separate and started independently, and and we were considering putting them together. And uh, one of our investors, uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, the chief investment officer there, Carmichael Roberts, he told me he pulled me aside and he said, uh, you know, when we could meet in person, and he said, Mateo, if you figure out a way to merge with Yet and the team, I will invest. Not I'll, f- I'll let you pitch the partnership or we'll, we'll think about issuing a term sheet. He said, I will invest. And true to his word, we, we merged the two companies. Uh, and a week later, we had a term sheet and, and, uh, which we signed. And of course, that's when it feels very real. Right? You take somebody's money, you're signing up for, <laughs> for, for more than just a fun run of the park. And so that was great because we have fantastic investors, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, you know, the, the Bill Gates-backed uh, Climate Impact Fund, Prelude. Uh, out of San Francisco, also Climate Impact Fund, and then the Engine. There, they were our lead investors for the Series A, and we could not be happier uh, with with the group. and And they've been phenomenal for us this entire time. So that that's sort of the most obvious one. But then there are moments along the way, and this is part of the joy of working in a startup. There's you find pinch me moments. Uh, you know, it, it maybe it periods where you least expect them, and and it's things like test data comes in and it's phenomenal, <laughs> right? And you're like, I can't believe that, it's, that that's really real. And and it's pinched me for a number of reasons. One, um, the universe does work the way that we, we hope that it did. But two, this team is doing it all on their own. And I had nothing to do with that. You know, when you see the team deliver on really hard goals that you had nothing, that you didn't have a hand in, that is for me the greatest satisfaction as uh, as a co-founder, as a leader. I feel like your all hands meetings should be allowed to be live streamed so that everyone on the planet can be rooting for you guys. So truly, it would be so fun to see those moments. Uh, last, just quick questions here. What is your favorite interview question just to get to the core of somebody? So you don't have to talk about it. I just want to hear the, what's the question that when you're trying to figure out, is this the person who should come join our mission for the next 20 years? Yeah. Is there a question you like? I, I don't have a single question, but I almost always am trying to understand the choices that people make how they made them, why they made them. And also, and this is really important, what choices they had when they made that choice. Not everybody has the same set of choices to choose from. Um, and it's really important to recognize that. And that's how I, you know, I, I mentioned excellence is, is one of our values and, and it's, it's hard to define that, but I, there are marks that you can look for and, and the way that people go about, you know, all the yeses, all the things in their life that they say yes to and all the things in their life that they say no to are, are what I try and really get at, you know, to, for how they ended up where they are today. Because in, what we're really looking for is people of exceptional technical talent and also exceptional judgment. We want people who have really great judgment. And that is reflected, the best way to understand that is reflecting in how people make choices. And so what I, almost all my questions in interview have that in mind, uh, whatever it is, you know, you, you, if you're trying to understand somebody's career pathway, you're trying to understand they're not, they're extracurricular activities, whatever it may be. I'm always trying to understand what choice they made and what choice they had. I love it. Um, Last question, Mateo, you sit in a really unique perch. You have access to information, visibility of what the world hopefully could look like in a decade. Can you just give us a sense of 
what you think the world hopefully looks like in a decade? Well, from an energy perspective, since that's how I think about it most, I, I think it will be obvious that we could have done much more sooner and that um, the solutions are available. I, I think, you know, once you prove that something is possible, it seems obvious to everybody, of course. But um, I think that in 10 years, that that will essentially be the case, that we won't, there will be no debate about whether or not climate change, science is real. There will be no debate about whether or not we can go do the things we need to do at the global scale, because we will be doing them and it will just be a question of getting it done. Um, so I, I feel very optimistic. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm <laughs> probably uh, uh, you know, constitutionally optimistic more than most, but uh, I feel very confident that, uh, that the solutions will show up. And that's frankly, one of the fun parts of being an entrepreneur. You feel like you have, you have a secret that nobody else quite has yet, right? Because the world may not know. The asymmetry of information is extremely high right now. Uh, but it won't be for for too long, and um, and so uh, I feel great about uh, the, the prospects for this transition that we're going through, and being able to achieve the goals that we have. So hopefully nobody's despairing out there. Mateo, I just want to first say we, the world is rooting for you. I am deeply rooting for you, and it is going to be so much fun to watch where Form Energy goes over the next five years. And I'll just quickly say uh, we're grateful for your leadership through all of this. I think you know we're living in a unique moment right now in in history, and I really do believe leadership matters more than it ever has. And what's fun from this conversation is you just get to see how how deep the well of leadership that is in Mateo, how deep it runs. So thank you, and for every. Everybody out there, if you haven't checked out Form Energy, head to formenergy.com. And Mateo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alexa.